Okay, we are in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, and we're going to start reading, reading from verse, um, well, let, let's pick it up in verse 18. Acts chapter 4, verse 18, so we'll overlap a little bit from last week. But when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. And when they threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom the miracle of healing had been performed. And when they released them, when they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heavens and the earth to see in all that is in them. Who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you, appointed, whom you anointed, uh, uh, against your servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do to whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservant may speak your word with all confidence. While you extend your hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak the word of God with boldness. So look what they did when they were threatened, and they were told that they, they should keep quiet about what they were doing. They were threatened, and then they, they go back to their companions. They share with them the things that the chief priest said. And after sharing with them, they went into prayer. So, they took this, this threatening from the leaders. And this was no small threat. I mean, these were important people who were threatening them. Moreover, they were religious leaders. So, in a way, you might feel obliged to listen to them. But what they were telling them was contrary to the Word of God. And so, they went back to their companions and instead of bemoaning the fact that they had been picked on, and I'm telling you, that is the typical response. So somebody comes against us for our faith, or somebody accuses us of being rude because we were sharing the gospel or something. What we want to do, the typical thing is to go away, sit alone, suck our thumbs, and to complain to everybody then how terrible it is that, you know, the way we got treated and, you know, how unfair it was of God to allow us to be treated that way. That is the normal response. Now look at the response of the apostles. The apostles go back and they share it with their friends. And then they have a prayer meeting. It says in verse 24, When they heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord. So they had this prayer meeting. So their response is to pray. Their response is to pray. And, you know, just, just uh, yesterday, my son called me in my office, my youngest son, and, and something had happened, and, and uh, we were talking for a while, and I, and I said, well, what are we going to do? And he said, uh, I don't know. Pray? I said, yeah, that's it. Let's pray together. And, you know, this, this whole idea of 
taking the things that come at us in life, the trials that we go through, and praying. What a unique concept. Pray. And so they lifted up their voices in one accord, but they, the way they prayed, it's interesting to see the way they did this. They said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that's in them. So what they do is they start quoting Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. Exodus chapter 20 is the classic chapter where the Ten Commandments were given. And they start quoting from that. And they, they, they establish that you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So they're establishing the Godhead. That God is in charge of everything. So the first thing they do when they come into trouble is they take up the scriptures and they start to quote the scriptures. And they pray the scriptures back to God. So they don't just go into prayer time and, oh, God, it's so hard. You just don't know how hard it is, Lord. Oh, this life. Oh, No, it is just taking the scriptures and look at the way they pray. Maybe we don't pray properly. What they did is they took the Scriptures and they turned it around and started offering it back up to God and establishing that, hey God, you're in charge of everything. This is what you do. This is your business. This is the type of thing you do. And then he says, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, why did the Gentiles rage? The peoples devised futile things. The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. And so what they start doing now is they start quoting from Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2, they start quoting from. Now, Psalm 2 is a psalm about Armageddon. It's a psalm about what's going to happen in the end time, the end battle. But they take it and they apply it to this very instance. And this is what we're to do. We can take a scripture that may be a prophecy about something that's supposed to take place at a certain time, at a certain era. But take it and apply it to the day that we're in. This is called literal with application. That's what theologians call this sort of thing. Taking a scripture and not taking it in its exact prophecy period. Because that is a prophecy concerning what's going to happen at, at, at Armageddon, is Psalm 2. However, taking it and applying it. And this is most of what we do in our lives. We take the scriptures and we then apply it to our own lives. We write our name into it. I used to do prison ministry with a man who was the biggest drug dealer in that city. And he had come to know the Lord. And the way he had come to know the Lord is that people sent, that, that the drug dealers in Atlanta had sent, uh, um, had sent people into that city to kill this guy so that they could take over the drug business. And they shot him in the back. This big black man, they shot him in the back. And he said the bullet somehow went along his shoulder blade and fell out and fell on the ground and he's looking at the bullet that just exited his body. And anyway, through a series of events then, he came to know the Lord and we were in the same church and we were doing prison ministry together. And I wondered, how does a person who, who never, never went beyond the seventh grade, who lived on the street from the time he was in seventh grade, never knew his father and his mother was an alcoholic and he lived on the street from the time he was in seventh grade, could be so excited with the Lord and have a walk with God. At that period, he had been walking with God like 20 years, so it wasn't a passing thing. What could change a man to be so excited about God coming from a past like this? And I said, tell me about your life. What is it? That, that, that has so changed your life. What do you do? And he, he said, you drive me to my home. So we were coming from the prison. I drove him back to his home. 
And I went into his house, and his house was this little shoebox of a house. He didn't have much of a house. He had probably, probably two bedrooms and, and a little living room. But along his walls in his living room were quotes from the Scripture. So he'd take passages from the Scriptures. And, it, and so it would say, for example, I am more than a, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. And it would say, I, John, am more than a conqueror. And he would write his name into the Scriptures and go around his little, little living room there and recite this every day and take the Scriptures and pray them back to God. This is exactly what they are doing here. They take the Scriptures and they pray them back to God because many times we don't know how to pray as we ought. We go into our prayer times and it's a time of just utter complaint just dumping our complaints out to God. And you think, okay, the next day, God's thinking, okay, they'll be all right. They'll complain about everything, and they'll come and they'll start rejoicing and seeing God. And then the next day, we come and complain. And then the next day, we come and complain. We wonder why nothing's ever happened, because we never ask for anything. All we do is come and complain. Jesus said, you don't receive because you don't ask. So, that's what James wrote this in, in the epistle of James. But what they did is they took the scriptures and they applied it to their own lives. They took this portion that says that people are going to be warring against God and against His Christ. And they say, this is what's happening here today. And they start taking the scriptures and they apply it to where they are today. This is the pattern we have in prayer to follow. To take the scriptures and to pray it back to God. You can take a psalm and just Pray it right back to God. A psalm of victory and put your name in it and pray it back to God. And it lifts us out of this thing rather than going into a prayer time and coming out the same way because all we've done is gone and invent and complain. I mean, poor God. Imagine what he's got to listen to all the time. I mean, just venting and complaining. You ever have any, a person that all they do is complain, all they do is vent, all they do is offload all their problems, not one day, but every day? You ever meet anybody like that? I mean, I'm like, I just want to stay away from folks like that because it just sucked the life right out of me. And, and uh, God's got to hear all this. But He gives us a pattern for prayer. And this is, this is the way they pray. And then they say in verse 27, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anoint- they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So nobody is excluded from this. If you think, oh, the, the, the Jews crucified Jesus. They did. Well, the Romans crucified Jesus. They did. Well, all Israel crucified Jesus. And all Gentiles crucified Jesus. That's what it says. It says, gathered together was Herod, Pontius Pilate, these two Roman guys, and the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Everybody, everybody was responsible for the death of Christ. There is no group excluded. Everybody was responsible. And that's what they pray. And they say, to do, to your, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So what do they do? They acknowledge God's sovereignty. They say, this stuff has happened. All of this has happened. But they are acknowledging God's sovereignty and, and, and saying, Lord, you are still sovereign. All of this happened to our Lord Jesus. He was killed. He was crucified. But you predestined it. It wasn't as if God was caught off guard that His Son got killed. No, God predestined it. God knew. We never take God by surprise. And now, Lord, take note of their threats. And so now comes 
this specific request. So the first thing they do is they're acknowledging His Lordship. So they acknowledge His Lordship and they say, you made everything. And they start quoting some of the Scriptures and saying, this is exactly what the Scriptures said would happen. And now they start bringing forth their requests. And they say, take note of their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all confidence. So he says, take note of their threats. What we're coming to you, Father, is because of their threats. They've threatened us. They told us not to speak in your name. Take note of their threats. You know, sometimes I get a letter, an email or something that's particularly disturbing, and I'll print the thing out, I'll go to the chapel on campus, I'll get on my knees, and I'll put the thing right before me and say, Lord, look at this. Look at this. And this is exactly what what Hezekiah did in the Old Testament. He got, he got this message was brought to him and he came and he laid it out before the Lord. And he said, Lord, look what's been brought to me. That these people are coming to destroy us. Take that message, just lay it out before the Lord and said, Lord, I want you to see what I see. This is what's coming against me. Now, it's not that God doesn't know, but it just focuses us and God on the same issue. He said, they say, take note of their threats. And grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. So in other words, don't let us become faltering in our witness because of these threats. Grant that we may speak your word with all confidence. You see how specific the prayer is? We go to God in our prayer time and we don't ask for anything. And God is like, what what do you want? Oh, I just want to praise you. Okay. And then we're like, God never answers my prayers. Well, we never ask for anything. They're very specific. They say, take note that we've been threatened and we want confidence. Grant us confidence. That's what they're praying for. While you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So, you you see what they say. That we want confidence... We want to continue to see your hand of healing in people's lives. And we want to see signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So we want to continue to see signs and wonders. Don't let them stop. I mean, you just healed a guy who had been lame from his mother's womb and he was over 40 years old. We want to continue to see healings like this. And God immediately begins to answer their prayers. Not all of them, but immediately begins to in verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken. It doesn't say they were shaken. It doesn't say that it's just they were shaken. Maybe, maybe they were shaking, but the place they were in was shaking. It says the place was shaken, so the building starts rocking. Whoa. They wanted to see a sign, so God said, okay, I'll show you a sign right now. How's that? Is that fast enough? And the place starts shaking. And then it says, uh, uh, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the the word of God with boldness. So God fills them with the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak the word of God with boldness. The very thing that they had prayed for, confidence in speaking, God granted them right then and there. And the healings come later. We're going to see that he continued the healings. But immediately he shook the place as a sign And he began to give them boldness. And again, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember, filling with the Holy Spirit is not baptism in the Spirit. Baptism in the Spirit comes when we give our lives to the Lord. And Jesus comes and fills our life. This filling of the Holy Spirit comes again and again and again when we are set apart for a specific purpose. We are filled with the Holy Spirit for a specific purpose. 
And they prayed that they would be so filled, and God filled them for the specific purpose of speaking His Word. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is something that we can have over and over again in our lives. And just because we're empowered and we speak on one occasion doesn't mean that we're set for all occasions. It means that we have to get filled again for another occasion. That there's this infilling that comes. Okay, now verse 32. And when the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, And not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales, and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. You will see throughout this book that the church goes through periods of great highs where everybody is getting along, and then the next chapter, nobody's getting along, or people are getting in big trouble. It is normal church life. Remember, we went through this. There are periods in churches where everything is going well, everybody's happy. There are periods in churches where... Times are a little rough, and you don't just run and think you're going to run to another church and join another church that's in the high period, because as soon as you get there, it's going to go low again. Something is going to come up. This is part of life. Families, the same way. You don't just run every time there's problems. I mean, I have lots of problems in my family, and the cause is mostly me. But, so I can't run away from it, but they don't run from me. I mean, we're there. We're together. We're a family. Alright, so it says the congregation of all, they were of one heart and one soul, and not one of them claimed anything belonged to himself, and there was great power and there was great testimony going on, and there was abundant grace. There weren't needy people, for there were, the owners of land or houses would sell them, turning in the proceeds of their sales. This was completely voluntary. It was not mandatory. And we see this in the beginning of chapter 5, where, where Peter says, Was the not land not your own? And when you had it, you could make the decision. They were never told to sell their land. It was completely voluntary. It was not mandatory. And once they sold the land, they didn't have to give everything. They could give whatever portion they wanted. It was up to them. The only problem was that we see in Acts chapter 5 was that Ananias claimed a certain amount. He said, I sold it for such and such a price, but he was really holding back some of it. So he was lying. So the lying is never justified, but everything was in his own control. Now remember, this is a book, this is a historical book. It does, it is not a book where, where we get doctrine. There are specific doctrinal statements that fill the epistles. There's a few doctrinal statements in this book, but not many. These are historical things, and we can't, get, we can't make doctrine from history. So what we do is we look at the specific doctrinal statements. This practice of selling land and everyone sharing everything in common was never seen again in any other church in the book of Acts. Nor in any of the epistles do you ever see it again, nor is it ever spoken of that that's what they should do. The propositional statement of what they should do with their money is in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, it says what's to be done when people have money. 
And this is what's to be done. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to be good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves a treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So this is Christian generosity. This is the doctrinal statement of where we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be generous. And people who are rich, be generous. You don't put your, your, your uh, hope in riches, but you be generous. And in being generous, you store up for yourselves, in these good works, you store up for yourselves treasures. Treasures in the future God has for rich people. And when rich people give, they get treasures. They get absolute treasures. The last thing you want is for rich people to lose all their money and have no more means to make money. God has blessed people with that ability. Let them continue to make money and give it to the church and be a blessing to the body of Christ and learn to be generous. That is the propositional statement. And in fact, we've discussed this before. This practice, this very practice, caused the church in Jerusalem to become impoverished. And they had no more money. That's why this pattern was never carried out in any of the other churches. So, there may have been certain reasons why they were doing it. Well, one of the reasons was they believed that the second coming was imminent. That it was going to come very, very soon. That Jesus was about to return. And that was not a bad assumption to have. And, and you know, I remember, I remember um, in the 1970s that there were churches that I was in that felt that God was coming back immediately and, you know, no use to buy property. Let's just rent this facility because God's coming back. And what happened was rents started just going up and up and up and eventually they had to buy it because it was, the church couldn't sustain the rent anymore. And so, you know, we don't know when the Lord's going to return. He could come today. He could come tomorrow. He could come next week. We don't know. He could come in a thousand years. But this practice, it may have been because they believed that the Lord was imminent in His coming, and we learn later on that they did believe that, and Paul had to straighten them out, saying, we don't know. It also may be because he was preparing them for Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, they were all going to be dispersed, they were all going to be kicked out of Jerusalem anyway, so they were probably going to lose their land anyway. So maybe he was preparing them for that. But we see that, that the Jerusalem church became poverty-stricken and became dependent on donations from other churches. Look in Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, verse 29 and 30. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution to relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of, in, in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. So you see, they were impoverished. They had to get donations from the Gentile churches had to sustain them. Then you see this again in Acts, Acts chapter 24. If you look in Acts chapter 24, verse 17. Now after several days I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. You bring alms to your nation, alms are gifts that had to be brought, uh, uh, that had to be presented. And then look in, in Romans chapter 15, you see this same thing again happening in Romans. Romans chapter 15, verse 25. It says, but, but now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for all the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. 
And yes, they were pleased to do so. So you see that he was taking up donations from Macedonia and Achaia for the poor saints in Jerusalem. That church became impoverished by this practice. That's why we see no propositional statements that say, you know, everybody always sell their land. And you see this sometimes, and you will experience this in your lives, where people come in the church, ah, it says right here, this is what you're to do. You have anything, sell it, and just give away the money. That's not what it says. That's not what it says. It says you are to be generous. Be very generous. And you give out, even out of your sustenance, you give in generosity. Okay, and then in verse 36, it gives the example of a man named Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, and he sold it, and he brought the money, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. So this guy's name was Barnabas. His real name was, was uh, Joseph. He was called uh, Barnabas uh, by the apostles. The apostles like to call him Barnabas, which meant son of exhortation or son of consolation. So they really liked this guy. And in fact, Barnabas became an apostle, and we'll see some of those verses. There were two classes of apostles. One class of apostles was the twelve, and Matthias became one of them. And remember that they had to be with Jesus from the baptism of John throughout his resurrection. They had to be with him over, over that time period. And those were the twelve. And then there was another group of apostles, two of which we know, Paul and Barnabas, who were not with him from the time of the baptism of John, but they had seen him in his resurrection. That was the other group, that they had just had to see him in his resurrection. Paul was one of those. Barnabas was another. Barnabas is mentioned 24 times in the book of Acts alone, and that's a lot concerning that the book primarily follows Peter and Paul, and he's mentioned five times in the epistles. Uh, he's the cousin of John Mark, it says. It tells, tells us in uh, Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, that Barnabas... Uh, was the cousin of John Mark, who is the author of, of the Gospel according to Mark. And so he was, he was part of that, that family. He, he's spoken of again, the Gentiles at one point called him Zeus, which was their chief god. So he may have been impressive looking in, in some way. Uh, it says in, in Acts chapter 11, he was full of the Holy Spirit, he was a good man, and he was full of faith. So in Acts chapter 11, verse 24, it tells us about him. He was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit and he was full of faith. Uh, uh, in Acts chapter 9, Barnabas was the one who persuaded the church to listen to Paul. When Paul got converted, the church didn't believe that Paul was really a Christian. They didn't believe it. They thought he was, he was acting this way so that he could get in the church, find out who the believers were, and then get them thrown in prison or killed. They didn't believe it. And Paul is the one who made the introduction. Paul was sent to investiga investigate Gentile salvation when it first occurred in Antioch, in Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Paul went and he got, uh, I, I mean, he went and he got Paul from Tarsus and he helped in the ministry of Antioch. So he was there serving with Paul in the church in Antioch and he was sent out with Paul uh, uh, in the church of Antioch. He was Paul's companion on the first of his three missionary journeys. And, uh, um, and we're, it's in, in Acts, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1, it talks about how if you've seen the Lord, that is a qualification. Not everybody who saw the Lord in His resurrection was an apostle, but that was one of the qualifications necessary to be of that second group of apostles. And in Acts 14.14, 14, it says, it calls indeed Barnabas as an apostle. Now, the interesting thing about Barnabas in verse 36 is that he was 
a Levite of Cyprian birth, meaning he was part of the Jews of the Diaspora. Many of the Jews lived outside of Jerusalem, and he was born in, in, in Cyprus, and he was a Levite. Well, remember one of the commands upon Levites concerning land? What was one of the Old Testament commands upon Levites concerning land is that they weren't to own any land. Levites weren't to own any land. So in Numbers chapter 18, verse 20, and in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 9, it discusses how, how Levites, their whole inheritance was the inheritance of the Lord. So if you look on the old maps of, of Israel according to the, the different tribes, you will never see a, a, a land area given to the tribe of, of Levi, to the Levites. They never owned any land. They weren't permitted to own land. And so, so their inheritance was the Lord, and they lived off of the tithes of the other Israelites. That's how they were told to live, and they inherited the Lord. But after they came back from Babylon, there was no more living in tribes. They were all intermingled, and it was at that point that this practice was no longer maintained by the Levites. The Levites bought land because there was no defined area for them that was given. Remember, the Levites were given the temple area and land right, right around. They, they were just, they had the Lord and they lived right around the city. And, and this is where they lived. But after the Babylonian captivity, then because there was no means to practice this, where they were separated in tribes, there was no longer separation in tribes. And so, so the Levites then owned land, or else Barnabas couldn't have owned land to have sold. And so he sells this tract of land, and he lays it at the apostles' feet. So you see, the apostles actually had money laid at their feet. But what did Peter say? Back when, when, the, when the lame man wanted a donation, Peter says, gold and silver have I none. I don't have any gold and silver. So personally, Peter didn't have money. Peter wasn't a rich man personally, though he controlled large sums of money that were donated to the church. But he didn't let that money become part of his own personal money. And that is a very good thing. And he, he kept very strict control over this thing so that personally he had no money. And so when you're given control of money, you just want to make sure that you take proper control of the money, but you don't make it your own if it's not your money. So there was good money management. And so he laid this money at the apostles' feet. And so now you see in, in chapter 5, let's go to Acts chapter 5, and we'll see something analogous. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And when he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. And the young men got up and carried him out, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife, not knowing what had happened, came in, and Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. 
Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she, she fell at his feet and breathed her last, and the young men came in and found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church. Wow. What you'll find is that every time there's, there's a new dispensation, a new time period, that God is ushering in something new, the miracles are all the more vivid, but so are the judgments. You take Nadab and, uh, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. The sons of Aaron go into the, the temple early on, and this is, this is early on in, in the tabernacle's formation. They go in and they enter up stru- strange fire, and God kills these two young priests, these two young men. Now, many, many things much worse than that had happened in the tabernacle and happened in the temple, and God didn't kill them. But judgment was very severe at that time. Judgment came very severe in those time periods. And that was, that was, that was part of uh, uh, the way it was. And, you know, it was this same guy, it was the same guy, Peter, who wrote in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, judgment starts with the household of God. So you find that at the beginning of some new era, there are far more miracles crossing into the promised land. God was, was you know, opened up, opened up the Red Sea and they cross on through and then all these miracles in the wilderness where food is coming out of heaven and water is coming forth from rocks. But along with that, the judgments are far more severe as well. And we see this sort of thing. And so the problem was not that Ananias sold his property or that Ananias gave a sum of money. It was that he gave a sum of money and said that was all of it. He says, here, I sold my land for such and such a price. And Peter knew that because he said to, Anna, to Sapphira, was this and this the price? She says, yeah, that was it. They agreed together to lie to the leadership of the church. That is a big problem. If we lie about something that we are, to the, to, to the leadership of the church, it's a big problem. Not that we're, that we're to ever to lie. But they were bringing this to the church, and God's judgment was much more strict. Let me tell you, things much worse than this happen today. Much worse than this. And you don't see people just dying, boom, just like that, instantly. The judgment was more severe. Nevertheless, sin does bring things in our lives that are painful. Now, many sicknesses happen because we get sick, because our bodies are what they are, and everybody at some point is going to die physically, except for the few people that are going to be, know the Lord upon the Lord's return, and they're going to be taken up to heaven directly. All the rest of us are going to die physically someday, and we're going to die of something. And even if we die in an accident, we don't just die in an accident, we die in an accident because... You know, our, our heart was impaled upon a spike or something, and it, <laughs> and, and, and it therefore stopped beating. I mean, there is some cause of that, some, some physical cause of that. All of us will die someday. But sickness and pain does come upon a person's life because of sin. So if we continue to walk in sin, that can bring sickness and pain. You say, oh, I don't see that. It's all throughout the Scriptures, and we'll see some of those verses. And it happens in the New Testament church as well. But we see it that 
Death came upon these people, and it doesn't say they died spiritually. You say, well, they weren't really believers to begin with. It doesn't say that at all. They had to be believers because they were part of the church. If they weren't part of the church, then Peter has no authority over them to pronounce this, this, this death sentence on them. It doesn't say they went to hell. They didn't go to hell. It says they died. They died physically. That's what happened to them. As a result of their sin, as a result of their lying, something came upon them. Look in, in, in uh, 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 Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 3. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7, it says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. When we turn away from evil, we feel better. If we walk in evil, what happens is, it makes us get sick. Look in, in, in uh, um, Psalm 32. Psalm 32. Same sort of idea you see here in Psalm 32. Psalm 32, and, and this is the Psalm of David, verse 3. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my, my vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. If we keep silent about our sin, we feel weak. Physically, it will take a toll on us. If we as believers keep silent about our sin and don't confess our sins to God, we'll feel weak. This happens, and it'll drain you. It's happened to me many times, many times. In fact, I'll, I'll give you an example from this week. This week, I wrote an email to somebody a bit snappier than it deserved to be. And in the context of the way emails are sent, it was really nothing. But in the context of what God has called me as a believer to, it was something. And I felt bad about that for like two days. And every time I'd think about that, I just didn't feel good physically. And I just, you know, sent an apology to this person and, and, uh, and you know, she said, oh no, that's fine, I, I perfectly understand, but, but I had to apologize. It did something to me. I didn't feel good physically. Every time I would think of it, I felt like shaking. Not out of fear, but just out of frustration. Why, why did I do this? When we sin, it has a physical effect on us. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You say, well, that was Old Testament. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is very much New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says in verse 27, concerning the Lord's Supper, Therefore, whoever, and eat, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But if we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So he says right here, if we partake of the body in an unworthy fashion, he says we can get weak or sick, and some people even die as a result of this. This is what he's saying. So in other words, 
The reason we take the Lord's Supper, and so, you know, some people don't want to take the Lord's Supper because they don't want to be part of this. Well, the Bible says, so let him eat and let him drink. We are supposed to do it. So let a man eat and so let a man drink. We are supposed to do it. But what it's supposed to do is cause us to examine ourselves, as it says. Let a man examine himself. And say, Lord, is there something that I've done this week? And say, oh, Lord, forgive me for that. And make a commitment in my heart to deal with it, with that person. Then it says, so let him eat of the flesh and drink of the blood. So let him eat and drink of the cup. Let him do it. And if you don't do this, it's going to affect your life physically. These are very physical things. Weak, sick, and sleeping, which means death, which was the New Testament way of often speaking of death. Weak and sick, and some people die as a result of this. Now, not everybody. A lot of people die for other things. But if we keep quiet about our sins, we get sick. There are physical effects. What we see there in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 5, was the beginning of this dispensation, and the judgment was all the more radical. And then the Bible says that if we examine ourselves, he says uh, uh, in, in verse thir- 31, but if we judge ourselves rightly, we will not be judged. We can escape judgment if we judge ourselves rightly. If we repent of this, we escape judgment. Now, if we don't repent of it, we are judged. But God judge, judges us and disciplines us so that He doesn't condemn us along with the world. So we don't go to hell for it, but we are just judged. And one of the judgments is, we get sick. That's what it speaks about. And now, a lot of times we get sick for other reasons. Because we, you know, we were in a ball game without our shirt and it was cold out or something. You know, something happens. We do silly stuff and it gets a, we get sick for it. Or we, you know, stay out too late, too often, and we only get four hours of sleep and that goes on for four months and you get sick and you get a runny nose. I mean, there are other explanations for getting sick. Or, you know, you get other things that happen to us. This happens. But there is the case where as a result of sin that goes unconfessed, we become physically sick. And if this hasn't happened to you, good for you. It's happened to me lots of times. There have been other times when I've been really sick and it was because God was dealing with me with something and I wasn't dealing with it and I get real sick. So physical sickness is not unusual. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, as a result of sin. And this is why God brings this to us each week. He says, you're going to confess this. This is the beautiful thing about taking the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You, Lord, for the specificity that we can have in prayer. And I pray for these young people that You would take this Word and drill it into their hearts, that they would learn to be generous, learn to be giving. And Father, that they would learn to be open about their sin and confessing that to You so they need not experience the sickness that can even come with that. Father, I pray for Your grace upon these young people. I pray for your grace upon them, your mercies to abound, and the grace of God to be there. Father, I pray that you would work in their lives so that they would have good lives set apart for you. May your mercies abound there. And I give you thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen.